This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from InterVarsity Press and CT Creative Studio. It's never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Sometimes you just have to be a fan. And I've been a fan of Show Baraka for a very long time. I first got introduced to him as a hip-hop artist, but I also began to realize that he was also, he's a creative, he's an intellectual, so he speaks, he consults, he does a little bit of everything. So my agent has been trying to get me to write a book, and I just, I, my own personal desire was to write fiction. And they, over a span of a year and a half, basically discouraged me away from that and was like, the world really wants to hear you, you know, in nonfiction. And so it's my own kind of like musing, looking at through history, looking at, you know, theology and kind of demonstrating how our work and how our art and creativity paints a picture of God and how sometimes we do it in ways that are beautiful and sometimes we do it in ways that are detrimental. And so... Oh, I got all off topic. Anyway, so no, no, no. He, like he, I, I, I'm, he, I'm recording now, so I, I don't. I, I played <laughs> you like I wasn't starting the podcast. I hit record already. <laughs> Show came out of a Christian music scene that was a little bit safe in some ways. He thought that you know the Christian artist should have the freedom to bring the entirety of who they are to their art, and I'm not speaking about just hip hop. I mean, just the art that he produces. That disruption cost him something. Show articulated this need for the freedom that comes with financial independence. The need for the artist to be free to create the art that they feel like God has called them to do. He used to write with this idea of this this person who was supervising his work. And he became free as an artist when he got rid of that gaze. And so Show wanted to be free of certain kind of institutional barriers, but so that he would be free to tell the church the truth, not so that he'll be free to build his own brand and make a kingdom for himself or free to be critical without hope, but he wanted to be free to tell the truth. You could be a revolutionary, but you still got to pay your bills. I think one, the record industry, or the music industry has forced individuals like myself who, you know, who've probably made their their career off of making music, it's forced us to find other alternatives of bringing in revenue because music doesn't sell the way it used to, maybe like seven, eight years ago. And so you have to find out how to create content in ways that bring in revenue for you and create content that brings attention to your platform and your brand. So for me, I've truly always felt like I was more than just a rapper. And so uh, I get contracts and jobs doing things that don't require me to actually put bars together and rhyme. It's like, you know, so for me, that is um, an actual thing. And I, and I also will probably say it's a sociological and political reason. I think certain there's certain stigmas that come along with you just saying you're a rapper. People don't think you have like some sort of astuteness to you to, to speak to issues and to life. And so when you say, all right, well, I'm, I'm a creative, then people seem to have a little bit more 
uh, leniency with you speaking into political and social issues. You talked about how people don't understand that the music industry has changed. I remember when I was a kid, and I guess it's on Tuesdays or Fridays, a new record would drop, and I would go to the record store, I will spend my $15 on the CD, mm-hmm. and that that was how I interacted. Way back in the day, I would even go to, forgive me, I would go to Lifeway, and I would, <laughs> <laughs> and I would go and find like my Lecrae and my show, before you got kicked out of Lifeway. But this is like the early days. <laughs> And so, okay. so, but then I remember um, when it switched, and I'm not talking about like the burning stuff. I'm talking about when it switched over to now, if an album comes out, I just download it on Apple or right. I, I just stream it. And so how has that affected how musicians, I mean, I'm assuming that's, a, that's been a big disruptive to your income stream and how you function in the wider culture. Yeah, it has been. I mean, some people have, well, you got to also think that there's a there's a generation of artists and creatives who this is all, all they know. Right? Yeah. So this is they didn't know the world of of going into brick and mortar spaces and buying CDs. So for them, this is like, oh, this is I've always streamed. But for people like me who knew a world before this um, it's disrupted us in a way that not only has it affected how we you know make money. You have to have in some ways artists have come, become more brand ambassadors now, like they become more brand conscious. Because labels would, would, the whole purpose of a label at one point in time was to give you an, an audience and services. Uh, and then they would cultivate you. And this is what you had, like, A&Rs would teach you how to be an artist and how to be a brand. Now what you have are people who are social media influencers and followers, people who have brands. And they don't necessarily need labels. They just need services now because they know how to sell themselves. They know how to promote themselves. They know how to get people's attention to come to their platforms and so um, it's changed in that way that artists are now thinking, how do I become a brand? How do I become something that is visible versus how do I become an artist and a creative? And so that's can be confusing and disrupting for, for a lot of people who actually really honestly just care about making the music versus being a presence. I didn't realize this at the time, but one of the things that made me unique as a New Testament scholar is the fact that I participated in social media. And so I tweet about what I was reading or studying or interacting with pop culture. And so one of the things that was really shocking to me is that, I, and, and over time I've seen this pattern, so I'm watching you, Internet. So a publisher or a editor will start following me on social media. And then after a while, they were kind of sliding my DMs. They're like, hey, do you have an article <laughs> idea or a book idea? So the way that I initially started writing for Christianity Today, Washington Post, and the New York Times came from tweeting stuff and then they started following me on social media and then there were messages and emails. And one of the things I'm realizing is that even in the book publishing world on the academic side, publishers are looking for writers who the public already knows. The thing that makes that really interesting is that when I was graduating from when I was graduating from school, and they were giving you all of these job talks. It's like, how do you get a job in the New Testament world? One of the things they said is, don't say or do anything controversial. Keep your head down and get tenure. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay. well, no, I'm I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole point is that, like, you can't have a black New Testament professor or a black professor quiet. 
I mean, that's how they that's how they kind of keep you. But the interesting thing about all of that is that I wasn't attempting to build a brand. I was attempting to make what I did accessible to the people who I wanted to reach. And when the publishers and the magazines saw that, they was like, well, can you do more of it? And so it's, it's almost like and the people who were from a previous generation, like you said, they had one idea of doing it, but now it's more publishers are interested, at least in me, because I think I have a brand. I don't know if a brand is the right word because I don't have a, a strategy. But whatever it is that I do, people sometimes are interested in it. And so you're saying that artists now are identities that people identify with more than simply the art that people consume? Right, absolutely. And you do have a brand. You So this is the thing. You may not see it, but people see it. Like Part of how you understand who you are and how you're perceived is ask people. It's like, you know, do a 360. Like, who, what do you, how do you perceive me to be um, on social media? Because you may think you're one thing, but then, you know, the way that people view you is another thing. And I, and I, and as, a, as an artist, the one thing that I realize is like a way that people connected with me is through my family. No matter how cool I thought I was, you know, and <laughs> no matter what I thought I was giving the world, because people saw me and how I interacted with my family on social media because of the songs I wrote, they saw me as a father and they saw me as a husband, right? And because I wrote songs about marriage and because I wrote songs about father and, and I wrote songs about uh, having kids on the autism spectrum, that's a way that people viewed me. And so it makes sense for me to partner or be an ambassador with organizations that talk about fatherhood or to talk about you know special needs and or to make an album about marriage because this is what people expect of me. Even if I want to make songs about going to the club, it's like, yeah, yeah, sure, that's cool. But however, I see you as a father. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you can go to the um, club, but we know that you're going to come home at exactly, 10.30. Exactly. exactly sober. Right? <laughs> you know, very sober. <laughs> tucking somebody in for yeah. bedtime stories. So anyway, that's that's the idea. And so um, you, you try to figure out how to utilize that in a way that's most beneficial for you without prostituting yourself in a way that's that feels dirty, right? And uh, and the world's looking at you, and people are saying like, "Man, hey, I want to be able to connect with him." Versus because the social media has turned into our corner shops, our our corners, our barber shops is turned into the the lecture halls where you know engagements and and transactions used to happen. Now they're happening on social media. The unfair advantage, the unfair thing about it, or the disadvantage about it, is that you can create a veneer about yourself that is that will be revealed to be shocking in some way, but um, it, there is a much easier connection to people. Do you think that Christians who are creatives are doing a better or a worse job of handling this transition to the new world? Is there a, a distinctive Christian posture that you think that creatives should have in the new world? I don't know if it's gotten any better or worse throughout time. I think what you'll find is that there are people who do a good job and there are people who don't and it's really about who controls the narrative like so who's the one that's talking about what is expected of christians and our engagement in popular culture and there are times when it's communicated that we should isolate and retreat to our ghettos and there are times when the predominant theory is let's go out and engage and change the world and so there are people on both sides who I think do good jobs and bad jobs, uh, good jobs and who do detriment. I do think sometimes the the nomenclature around what it means to be a creative in the mainstream space can be toxic and unhealthful and, and unhealthy. And um, 
I think ultimately the things that I try to do as far as like the intellectual the think pieces, I, I try to challenge like what does it mean to be a creative that both holds to a fidelity of the scriptures while at the same time recognizes that, you know, we don't live in isolation. We interact in the metropolitan. And so how do we challenge though? How do we challenge um, some of the, what I call like a, the evangelical edit of how we, how people try to remove us from some of the engagement of the world. One of the things that I struggle with is knowing how to balance, I guess, the charity of communication. So there's certain things that I know that I could say to a specifically black audience. And black people will know exactly what I mean, exactly what I'm talking about, and it won't be controversial at all. And then there will be some of my evangelical brothers and sisters who are going to basically misinterpret or just not hear that correctly. And so rather than me simply catering to that audience in a way that then doesn't land with the black community, I often try to find myself trying to split the difference mm-hmm. of of at least, I, I think of, I use the language of what does charity demand? And so I guess I wonder, as someone who's a creative, how do you balance reaching a broad audience with speaking directly to the people who you're most interested in? Because I know in your career, you've been unafraid to speak bluntly. So how do, how do you how do you balance that saying, I know if I write this bar in this way, <laughs> this is going to happen. Do you just write it or... Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, I just, I just, yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time. There was a time uh, when. So it's funny. I just used the word. This, you know, I use the word. Uh, this, this phrase that I'm, that I've been trying to coin. <laughs> yes. This idea, this concept of like evangelical edit, right? So yes. There was a time in my first two albums where I felt this pressure, and I liken it to Toni Morrison where she calls it like a white gaze. She says that yes. when she was writing, she felt this pressure that there was this white man who stood over her. And 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 there are a lot of authors and novelists who felt consumed by pleasing that individual who was looking over their shoulder as they created. And she said she felt liberated once she said, you know what, I don't write for the appeasement of the white gaze. And in the same sense, I recognize that evangelicals are more than just white individuals. However, when we talk, when most people use that term, there's an, you know, there's this idea like, so for me, when I kind of said, you know what, I am more than just an individual who is to be edited by evangelicals. I felt liberated. And so from that point on, from like 2012, I, I just write what I, what I write. Now, I also recognize that there are black people that I write to or write for, um, who I don't write exclusively to black people. I write exclusively to the people I feel like I connect with. And the majority of that are black people. And so, um, I write for, I write for that. Ultimately I write for myself, like in a sense, it's like, this is who I am. And when I write, I'm, I'm thinking about the show Baraka who's in the crowd. I think about the show Baraka who's, who's 16 years old at high school. I think about the show Baraka who lives in, and Uganda, like I'm thinking about all the Shobarakas who exist and move throughout society. And I'm like, who's this individual that, sh- that shares some of the sentiments and struggles and burdens that I have? And how can I help them navigate through life? And for the most part, that, that may not fit some of the paradigms of the evangelical world nicely. And I'm not concerned with it fitting nicely. And 
I, I hear your charity. I hear your concern with charity. And I think that's, you know, it, it, I, I can say it's noble for you, but I don't I don't allow that to burden me at all because it, it gets it gets too exhausting. I'm glad that you talked about the show Baraka, who's in the audience, because when I used to, back in my day, when I was at, when I was a pastor, I used to think what it was like when I went to church and I went to church to the 16, 17, 18 year old and said, this might not have been godly. This is what I said. This pastor better preach me out of all of the sins I'm planning on committing in the next week. <laughs> it's Sunday, and I got some stuff planned for next week. And if he preached a good sermon, I was like, okay, you got me for this week. But I was a week-to-week Christian. <laughs> and so when I got in the pulpit, I thought about – we used to sit in the back on the left-hand side of the church. All of the young people used to sit in the, black, in the back and cut up. And the pastor had to cut through our foolishness. And yeah. so when I communicated, I always thought – I had to be able to reach in and grab me before I wouldn't committed some crime. When mm-hmm. I talk about, but when I talk about ch- what charity demands, and maybe this is like one of the ways in which it's just, it, and I know what Tony Morris is talking about. She's talking about the white gaze. What mm-hmm. I'm talking about is this idea. Is there certain people who the mention of race, justice, any of this stuff, the moment you begin to talk about it, they're going to call you a critical race theorist and slander right. you. I don't worry about those people at all. What I'm talking about, what does charity demand, is when I say there are ways in which I can say this statement that gives me the most rhetorical pleasure gotcha. yeah. <laughs> versus yeah. I can take 10% off of that. And there's a few people who might be on a fence who I could win over to our side. So when yeah. I talk about what does charity demand, and some people don't have the energy for it, and I get it. And like sometimes I, I'll see them tweeting, and I was like, that might be true. I'm not going to retweet it, but that was true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. when I talk about what does charity demand, I talk about what can I say that is authentic to what I believe that has the most chance of being heard by the most people. And if it, if oh, it, yeah, absolutely. You know, and it does mean, in some sense, there is a white gaze that kind of hovers over some of my work but not in the exact same way that what tony's talking about because no i so i agree and so i i do think there's 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 a lot of similarity in what tony's talking about and what you're saying but there's also you know some difference um and i do and then the difference the the thing that you say is as long as you don't feel like you're compromising who you are in order to gain pleasure are to uh to get some sort of space at a table because you see like white superiority as the achievement right you know what i'm saying are like this this particular table is the end all be all um for me the one thing that i recognize that i i kind of i show a lot of charity in my language is is like i and this you know judge me if you want to listener yourself whoever I, I use foul language in real life. Like now it's not it's not like I'm not rocking around like Eddie Murphy raw yeah. or you know Dave Chappelle just cussing. But I use strong language in in certain situations. I use I use the N word a lot and this that's just who I am. I don't use it in the ways that I feel when I'm around certain people, I I you know, I curve my language. But however, I don't I try not to use strong language in my music because I recognize that it can create some sort of obstacle for certain people who want to listen to it. There are times when I have used it and because I felt it was necessary to create a point. Right. Um, and so that's one way in which I would say, I agree. Like I, I use charity because I feel like in order for me to get this message across and for it to be heard by the most amount of people, I probably need to, I need to edit myself in a way that I think is most beneficial 
uh, for this message, right? So you talked about when the gays fell away. I want to guess, and maybe you could tell me if I'm wrong, when this occurred. I want to, and forgive me if I get the chronology wrong, was this talented 10th in high society? And what order did those two come out? Is that when you felt like you were free to be yourself as an artist? Yeah, so it's high society was the first album. That's what I, I thought. I, that was that was somewhat of that was the first couple steps. It was like, all right, here, let's let's give this a chance. And it's funny because we had the first song we released as that group was a song called Devil, and yes. and it was it was it was basically about how people said he got the know, devil in him. I listened. He got the devil in it. <laughs> and so we intentionally made an album cover that had like this symbol that looked really weird because we wanted to say like this is all this is just a symbol like shapes lines numbers the lord owns it all so it doesn't really matter the the whole point is is that you guys are attributing satan to something which god is going to get the glory out of and so that was a, and now i mean obviously if we were to do that same song now people would be like oh this is this is this is nothing this is tapered but back then it was oh my gosh fuck oh my gosh what's wrong with you, you guys are illuminati and i was like this is crazy but then the next t- talented tip is when I was really like, okay, this is it. I, like, I'm pretty much if I'm gonna do this, I might as well do it because people. I just say my mom used to say, if you're gonna be stupid, be all the way stupid. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I might as well just be all the way stupid. And so I uh, decided I was like, this is t- this talented tip that had a song on there called Jim Crow, where I, you know, the song, you know, Nigga Island, and then I uh, used some strong language on the song, and then I mean, there's a lot of different, um, I guess you could say issues that I addressed on that album that I knew that would cause a stir within the spaces I was in. And I was also at that point, not only like creatively and and, mus- and musically, I wanted to kind of remove myself from any kind of chain that I felt like attached me to uh, kind of like this, this evangelical posture that limited people. I also was like struggling and my faith in general at that point. And you as an Anglican can kind of appreciate this. At that point is when I started to start to dive into like orthodoxy and started to read people who weren't just uh, Europeans. Um, I started to study more Asian and uh, early, early Asia and early African theologians and started to learn the history of North Africa and Asia and church history. And so for me, it's like it expanded my worldview and it expanded my theology. That's around the same time I got introduced to individuals like N.T. Wright. Um, and then I just started to study African-American theologians. And yes. it's crazy how from that point you start to realize like we've had a different theology since the inception of America. Yes. And for me to abandon the idea of justice, to detach justice from theology or justice from the gospel and how it implies to or how it applies to um American social issues would be a disservice not only to the Christian heritage of the African of the African American church, but I think in generally to the gospel of Christ in general. That's my favorite color, but it's subject to change. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of the Disruptors. Intervarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com/disruptors with an e to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now, let's go back to the conversation. I always used the language of 
African-American Christianity began as a protest in part to establish law. So when Christian, like when the black, when the first black person becomes a Christian in the United States, slavery is legal. And they said, you know, know what? We need to change the laws of this government so we can properly practice our Christian faith. There's this document and I, there's no way it'll get linked to the podcast, but you should Google it and find it. It is a letter to of African American slaves to the the um the legislature of Massachusetts, and they're basically saying we can't practice our Christian faith with slavery. And they're, they're some of it is barely literate, and they're not quoting like the passages you would think. They were they're quoting things like Galatians, where they say, "How can we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ when I'm forced to bear my brother's burden? How can I love my wife as Christ loves the church when I have no control over where my wife's going to be?" And it was just like robustly theologically sophisticated critique of slavery rooted in their conversion to Christianity. And so this idea that justice in Christianity or justice in personal salvation could ever be separated from the Christian tradition is something that it just makes no sense to black people. But Absolutely not. But discovering that came with a cost. So like what what do you say has been the aftermath of what you've done, not just with Talented 10th and High Society, but this comes all the way over into the narrative, which I think that's the next one that comes after that, correct? Right. Uh-huh. So what has been kind of the cost in your career of pursuing this trajectory instead of something that was more safe? Well, the damage was done in 2013. Like So <laughs> So I, the, after I released Talented 10th in January of 2013, this is right after... Trayvon Martin, and I'm talking about police brutality. I'm talking about police brutality on that album. I'm talking about Oscar Grant, which I think happened in 2010. I'm talking about issues that I grew up, you know, experiencing in California with LAPD. So about 2013, uh, and then 2014, if I'm not mistaken, you have Mike Brown. So now the world is, you know, is on fire in a sense when it comes to like racial injustice and trauma. And I, here I am, a dude who was already kind of like maligned and ostracized because of that work. And so in a lot of spaces, I was marginalized. However, in, on the flip side of that, I became more of a lecturer and a consultant on, to people who really wanted to work on the issues or spaces that always had this philosophy and they were just waiting for someone within a Christian space, more specifically, maybe like, you know, someone like me to speak to it or speak to their students or speak to their church, um, uh, universities, HBCUs, uh, kind of some of your liberal Christian institutions and churches. And I started getting gigs in those spaces rather than the more conservative spaces. So you said this cost you then relationships within the music industry when this came out you said you were ostracized so so this cost you absolutely financially i was we were struggling bro i can get my wife down here we could talk about how it was rough for about a good two years but then once the world started to come around when i say the world mostly the evangelical world right started to come around once they realized like no there is systemic injustice this like racism is still a a big issue in our society people started inviting me back and I remember at one point there was a seminary I performed at and I don't want to say the name but it's a fairly popular seminary in this country 
and they had me come perform and there were groups who were protesting the concert because I was there and they said we will not bring our students we will not bring our church because Show Baraka is performing there and all because of you know my talented 10th album Can I ask a question, Show? No, you yeah. can't. You can't. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I'm the host. Sorry. <laughs> now, Ashley Coach, you get one question. Thank you. <laughs> this is a good one. Maybe. The, during that time, there had to be conversations you were having with people close to you, not just like out there, but close to you that were like, why don't you chill out? No, they, they, there was never the chill out conversation because if, if I'm honest, those folks knew who I was if anything they thought that I was I had had suppressed parts of who I who I am like so just just a little kind of bio I grew up in Southern California um and kind of like gang culture well I wasn't a gangster but and you know this is the height of kind of like NWA you know Snoop all that other stuff um so I had families and gang members um, families and gangs uh my mom was a Black Panther um Southern California during the time of the Rodney King beating, uh, police brutality. My uncle was choked out by police officers that and it made national news in Phoenix. And so this is this is who I am. This is this is what I grew up seeing and, and these are the things that kinda of cultivated me as an as an individual. I went to a HBCU historically black college and university at Tuskegee University. You know my uh, sister think, both my sister and two of my sisters went to Tuskegee. Oh well, look at that! I think we talked about yes. this actually. And the chick in the about. Chitlin Shack that I talked about <laughs> was real. Anyway, the chicken coop. The chicken coop. <laughs> yeah, chicken coop. I'm pretty sure it's the chicken coop. Yeah, so uh, we yes. go. We have a whole other conversation. Whole other conversation. <laughs> we keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> the chicken coop used to what they the, the joint was so small they would hang the pots and pans outside. And so <laughs> it was the worst and the best. So you talked about at the time that this stuff was coming out that you were having kind of a spiritual crisis. How did you work yourself back from that to where you are now? I just, the, the, the people I read, the books I started to read, the, the folks I started to study, they, they literally rescued me from drowning in a sea of, of doubt and despair. And so I started to pick up uh, Frederick Douglass's you know, which led me to the narrative, the reason why it's titled The Narrative, right? Uh, I started to read folks like Jarena Lee, studying Absalom Jones and, and Richard Allen. I, I started to read Lemuel Haynes. I started to read uh, Phyllis Wheatley. And too, the other thing is, is I started to read a lot more sociologists. So Du Bois, because I went to Tuskegee, and so I was very aware of the different paradigms of black thought. And so what happened was, is when I became a Christian, I began to suppress that stuff to go back to the question that Richard answered asked. I began to suppress that stuff because I felt like there was no place for this type of thought in these conservative spaces because I became a Christian in a very conservative kind of like white evangelical space. And so once I got to the place where it was like, I just don't know if I can handle this anymore because I feel like there's a part of me that is that is being suffocated. It led to this crisis. Then I just felt the freedom to open the cage and say, hey, all of Husha Baraka can come out and party now. <laughs> and so that's how I, I began to kind of like just revive myself. And there was, a, you know, there was, there was, there was life given to me. In 2013, 
when Talented 10th dropped, you felt like there's some stuff that you needed to say. And then in 2017, when you released the narrative under Humble Beast Records with Christian artists on it, CHH, so that seemed like those groups coming back together are kind of coming around to how you like to talk about Christianity. So I think the misconception is, is that when I decided to make the type of music that I wanted to make in 2013, that I wanted to disassociate myself from all things like Christian music. And that's not necessarily true. The The one thing that I wanted to do and be very upfront about doing was tearing down the constructs that define what Christian music artists should do and how they should make music, especially black Christian artists who don't come from like Nashville or don't come from this Christian music market or what is known as kind of like the CHH. CHH is his own identity. Like it wasn't formulated in some sort of Christian music market incubator. It it literally in a lot of ways is like like the the the, the origins of hip hop itself. It was birthed out of people who saw the world and they wanted to communicate to the world in a fashion and a form that was most authentic to them. And so because of that, I felt like all of these restrictions were put on me. It's like, you can't talk about these things. You can't address these issues. Just make our youth groups jump up and down and entertain them for an hour, right? And so for me, I was like, I need to challenge that. I need to push up against that. And it's unfortunate because of, our, because of that pushback and because of that challenge that, you know, I was marginalized by certain people. I was looked down upon by other artists, et cetera, et cetera. However, once the world began to shift in this conversation around justice, and equity, I think the market understood and shifted as well. And so to, to, to see me collaborating with, you know, artists again on the narrative or to see me integrated back into certain spaces, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily shocking. I think it's more of, I think there's growth in the market and, and sometimes certain people move faster than the market moves and the market moves faster than other people. And so I just think what, if, if anything, this is a a challenge and a charge to those who make Christian hip hop music to begin to be mindful of how do we take ownership of the music and the markets in which we we advance. So what would you say, and I know it's not your job to consistently be controversial, but if you feel <laughs> like the market has come around to understanding the need to be socially aware and to address issues related to the black community, in our music, what do you think the next step in growth is for creative who's in these spaces? What is the next kind of wall that needs to be pushed down? How do we begin to own the genre in itself, right? Because it makes no sense for us to have to go to folks for touring, um, to distribute, to this and to that, to we don't have our own, you know, uh, platforms to, for real to like communicate the messages we want the publications, um, the labels, you know, syncing. Like, I think at the end of the day, we have to begin to discover and own the channels for which we distribute our music and our genre. Granted, there have been a lot of white institutions and, and, and white folks who have come alongside and helped move the, the, the ball down the field, which I'm grateful for. And I think um, we, we can praise those folks for it. But at some point, we do need to have our own institutions and our infrastructure. I'm gonna get, I don't get in trouble for this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. So 
on my side, on the um, the publishing side, there are almost, I'll say almost, because I know someone will like slide into the, in the comments or something. There are very few black-owned publishing companies. If you're talking about publishing houses, they publish books. Every single African-American book that you see that is published is published usually by white publishers. Black people don't own any of that. All of black literary talent is filtered through white publishing. We don't own any of it. And so you talk about the residuals. This is this is literally African-American religious publishing. I'm, I'm, let me be clear. I'm talking about the Christian publishing world. The African-American Christian publishing world is like the music industries of the 30s, 40s, and 50s where black people get no residuals. And so we're we're the talent. But we don't have we don't own any infrastructure. And so one of the things I've talked to African American writers about over and over again is that we have to find ways to create this stuff because one of the things that happens is that means that the people who are closest to the ground, who actually know talent and who can recognize who has the ear to say, This is a voice we want to lift up, we're not the ones choosing who get published. That's exactly what I'm saying. We have zero infrastructure. We don't own it. So the conversations that you guys are having is going to result in equally important and hard conversations behind the scenes that that are clarifying and I think really valuable. Oh, you mean like are we, I'm going to get in trouble for this podcast? So like ex- explain like so for instance. So this is IVP podcast. Oh, okay. So that's a so that's a conversation <laughs> we're going to have to have and the reasons for whether or not we use that are going to are going to be clarifying for everyone involved. Yes. Um, which is not a judgment. It just is what it is. This is the problem when you start talking to black people. This is why I don't have black people on the podcast. You're going to get me fired, show. Black ownership does that, right? Yeah. You guys own this podcast for at least that period of time. Yeah. And it it forces us to go, um, does this have a place in our space as well? We just scared all the white people on the podcast, show. It's basically but what it's, he said. It's like a good problem is what I'm saying. I think IBP of all the organizations would seem to get it. That's my favorite color. So what will be success for this book or what you think is next for you? So like what what does it look like to win in in this in this push for what you're trying to get the the genre to become? It's not just hip hop. I, I think about myself as you yeah. asked earlier, is like show you're creative. And for me, how do we create means of distribution or creation? So that people don't have to feel like the evangelical world or even the Christian entertainment world is editing the things that I want to communicate. And so, for instance, I am in partnership with some other with another uh, group of creatives to make a children's programming show. It's called The Professionals, and it's a variety. It's an educational variety show for kids. You'll be hearing more about it hopefully in the in the future as we are having some really encouraging conversations with people. And we're making that. And we've tried to promote it, and um, that's something that we're going to own and we want to distribute. They, you know, I want to see how can I create the how can I create space for people to be great and excellent in what they do without having to feel like I have to go through any institution necessarily. To, to manipulate and change it. Now, in some ways, it's like, how do we how do we begin to think outside of like, oh, if I want to be successful, I have to go through this particular channel of uh, of Christian creativity to in order for me to be heard. If we like our conversation earlier, if social media has created 
a uh, a bridge for us to from from the creator to the consumer then we need to start, take advantage of that and be more shrewd in how we begin to develop and and market ourselves and uh and i think Christ, christian hip-hop if you want to call it that are just people who make music and who love the lord we no longer have to yield ourselves to um to institutions that say you can't say this and you can't say that because we know that we can create ways to get to the consumer. So if you were, if someone's listening to this and they are creative in any area, what kind of advice would you give them about getting started or the first steps towards this new independent world that you're talking about? Uh, first thing would be is just be great at what you do. Like, <laughs> I think there are a lot of people doing stuff that are not a lot of people who are great at what they do. And I, was, man, I think excellence is uh, the attempt of crafting your skills and being great at what you do is paramount. I mean, because you can get people to view you on social media or you can get views on YouTube. But I think longevity is is biased to people who are great. And so... As long as you work hard at what you do, I think you can find yourself having stable work and having to try. Um, the other thing is that's the second thing is like recognize that you probably won't reach everybody. It's like who who's your market? Who are the people you're trying to reach? Who are you? Understand what does the world need? And that's how you develop uh, content. It's about what's needed. Who am I trying to communicate to? And let me be honest to that. Let me be honest to the craft. Let me be honest to the need and and leave the rest up to God. So how would you advise them on staying spiritually? Because you talked about the ups and downs as a believer in the creative space. Is there any, is there any spiritual advice you give to someone who's a Christian and creative on how not to lose themselves in the midst of doing all of this stuff? I think creatives have to be planted in some sort of community and Christian community. It's, it's paramount. The times where I was most dysfunctional are the times when I was <laughs> disconnected from a church or a Christian community. And creatives can linger easily because of either the travel or their giftedness in which they don't feel like they need people. Um, there's often this idea that we're aloof. And so I think the, the thing that keeps us centered is being connected to people who are able to speak truth to us and to critique our lives without us feeling like they don't have our best interests at heart. One of the things that was sometimes uncomfortable is that when black people begin to talk about having freedom and independence, people begin to say, well, what are these black people going to do with this freedom and this independence? And part of the thing the show says is that that's not the question you get to ask on the front end. As people who are created in the image of God, who have the spirit of God, we are able to discern what God has called us to say and to say it. There's also the question of what does love require of us, which is different than what can I say that they won't get me into trouble with the people who pay me? Versus what is the requirement of me as a Christian who lives in community to speak in such a way to be heard? And the line between those two things is not always clear. This is what Show talked about in this art. When are you accommodating your brothers and sisters in Christ? And when are you being controlled? 
And I think that line and that struggle that he dealt with, he deals with as an artist, and that any Christian deals with who's interacting with people across culture is this consistent struggle. How do I know when I'm being my authentic, true self? And when I say authentic, true self, that's like, sorry, it codes a certain secular freedom of, of determination. I'm speaking of it in a Christian sense that you're only truly free when you're being conformed to the image of Christ, but as you. So as an African-American Christian who's creating the image of God, who loves the scriptures, and who's trying to discern in those scriptures, what had God called me to say? This was Show trying to say as an artist. And how free am I going to be able to express those things? And what must I do to become free enough to do those things? And that's why Show said that artists need the church. Discerning how to say things and what to say and when to say them is something that I think is discerned in community but it has to be in a community that's safe and in a community that's goal is to help the artist flourish not to keep the artist under control thank you for listening to the disruptors we will be grateful if you would subscribe rate and review the show on apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast you can follow me at esau mccauley and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. <laughs>